there's three numbers that are you know important when you're when you're opening a restaurant your cogs uh, your labor and your uh, occupancy costs if you can keep those three numbers in line um, then you have a business that works Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Pizzito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with the president and co-founder of Sweetfin, Seth Cohen. Seth, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Angela. Of course. So on this show, we have a mix of restaurateurs and, you know, restaurants, uh, tech companies. And uh, we like to kind of just dive in and understand why people do what they do and, you know, how they got there. And so your story is quite fascinating. I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I saw online, there's about 20 Sweetfin locations, uh, mainly in California. But I'd love to understand take a step back and see how you got there. So maybe just to to our listeners, can you give them a high level of just for those that don't know, what is Sweetfin? Sweetfin is a premium poke concept. Um, I usually say we were pioneers in the poke space, Um, really took a a category of food that didn't exist in 2015 when we opened our first location um, and built a really strong, fast, casual model again uh, around poke, which um, was a very novel concept. Again, when we started in 2015, poke had originated from Hawaii. It was a dish that I just loved to eat. Um, growing up in LA, there's a big sushi culture and um, a big Japanese food culture. And I just thought um, potentially um, poke was an interesting vehicle in which you could build a, a, a fast casual model around. And so back in 2014, we started brainstorming this model uh, my friend Brett from USC, and then we brought on a chef, Dakota, who had just finished filming Top Chef, and another partner, Alan Nathan, who was a little bit more experienced in the restaurant space. And together, um, we put our heads and expertise together and um, kind of swung the bat and, and thought there was a real opportunity to build a, a, a meaningful brand and, and potentially start a new category of poke. And um, our thesis, and I, I guess our hypothesis was correct. Um, we opened our first store in 2015 in Santa Monica um, to just, you know, a ton of media, a ton of great press. Um, people in the community loved what we were doing. We had lines out the door for, you know, a full year where we were at the point where we could barely even keep up, um, you know, with the demand of our product. And people liked the fact that we were taking, you know, something that was familiar in terms of flavor, um, you know, it was really, you know, the way we explained it at the beginning was taking sushi and familiar flavors of sushi and putting it into a bowl and mm. people love the fact that you could customize it and make it as healthy or as unhealthy as you wanted it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we got off to a really great start. And then, um, you know, as, uh, happens in the restaurant industry, um, you had a lot of copycats come in and, and the market and the category kind of blew up. But, um, you know, we've always stuck to our guns in terms of differentiating ourselves as a brand and the product being 100% gluten-free, focusing on sustainability, utilizing better products, being chef-driven, having a strong brand identity design, focusing on technology to really set us our, ourselves apart. And so um, over the last eight and a half years, uh, we built 20 corporate-owned locations of Sweetfin, and we're just at the um, kind of inflection point of um, really putting fuel on our fire and, and growing uh, to the next level and bringing Sweetfin out, out of Southern California and 
going to other markets. Wow. 20 locations. I mean, for we have a big restaurant audience that listens to this, so I think a lot of them will, will definitely understand how hard one location is. So getting to 20 is, is no easy feat. But maybe before diving more into that, I always like to understand maybe the how people got where they are. So like, bef- you know, just taking a few steps back, what got you to that first location? Like, what were you doing pre-restaurant life that you're like, I I need more stress in my life. I want to open a restaurant. <laughs> I love stress. Um, you know, ignorance is bliss. I had no prior experience, real background in the restaurant industry. My family okay. wasn't in the industry, so I had no idea what I was getting into, um, which I think was a benefit um, right. long term. But my background, um, you know, I just had a few passions that really kind of, you know, I, if I build a, a, a Venn diagram of what I'm interested in, kind of the, the center makes sense as, you know, hospitality. And so um, I grew up just for whatever reason, um, being enamored with the Food Network. I love to watch it. Um, I love to cook. I just love food. I like, you know, I was a, a very creative kid and kind of that was my creative outlet cooking. And so I just had this, uh, you know, innate passion for hospitality and, and the food world as a whole. And so um, I went to USC. I studied entrepreneurship. Hmm. Um, I did a million and one jobs from, you know, financial analysts um, to working at Live Nation um, to promoting clubs. Uh, <laughs> you know, I did it all. And um Postgraduate, um, I ended up working with my family who's in real estate finance. And, um, you know, I, I, at the time it just wasn't for me. Um, I just, again, just had this calling um, for, I wanted to do something in hospitality, something in food. I always had a, a, a good kind of branding and, and marketing mind. And so um, this intersectionality of, of food, this passion for food and, and marketing and branding and this understanding of real estate moved me towards wanting to develop a brand in in that space. And so I was kind of doing an analysis of where the world was at the time, Um, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, you know, early 2010s. And and you just saw the rise of, um, you know, fast casual. And, and, you know, there's some great um, operators out there from Shake Shack to Sweetgreen to Chipotle and and Mendocino Farms. And I just saw that um, that was the future of um, the way in which people wanted to eat. Um, you know, it was a high quality product, you know, quick speed of service. And from a business model standpoint, you didn't need all the front of house labor that you would need um, from a you know, traditional casual fine dining restaurant. So, um, you know, I had a list of 10 different concepts that I was thinking about starting. And for whatever reason, this idea of poke, which had, you know, truly did not exist when we went to pitch landlords about it. Um, in trying to get our first space, they literally thought we were t- talking about Facebook, Facebook poke. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about those pokes. <laughs> people had no idea. They thought we were like a dating app or something. Hmm. And, um, you know, it just, just was one of those, you know, cuisine types that, um, seemed like it was, it was just had the opportunity to really explode people, you know, the, the Mediterranean diet was, was becoming more and more popular, people becoming more pescatarian in the way they ate um, this kind of like love for Japanese and Korean flavors, providing a product that could be customizable, a product that could be healthy and gluten-free, something that was great for takeout and delivery. So like I had these mental check boxes and I just kept coming back to this poke idea. And I was just thinking, keep it simple, poke, taro chips and iced teas. 
Um, and so that's, that was the original concept. And so we got, you know, pretty lucky in, in that we met a great chef who, you know, really bought into our concept and, um, you know, put her own very unique and interesting and innovative spin on what we were doing that, you know, so creative at the time. And, um, you know, we brought something to market that was truly innovative because there wasn't, you know, despite, um, these fast casual restaurants, you know, gaining in, in popularity, there wasn't a lot of innovation. Everyone was really kind of doing the same thing. There was a million better for you burger concepts or a million customizable pizza concepts. Right. You know, so everyone was kind of like, you know, not doing things that were super interesting, at least to me. And so I thought, you know, th this could be, this could be something that's, that's, that's new and novel and interesting. And uh, yeah, that's how we brought it to market. That's awesome. And so for, for the people listening, right, I'm sure there's, there's obviously big differences with location number one, location number five, and then getting to 20. So love to maybe walk through some of that journey because I find a lot of people can take away nuggets of, of wisdom from failures but also successes and everything in between. So maybe just jumping that first location, what were some of the challenges you faced when opening, you know, venue number one or establishment number one? I mean, there are so many. I think, you know, Man, I have so many, so many nuggets. <laughs> you're like, where to start? So to, <laughs> um, you know, first of all, you're we're starting a new concept. I'm an unproven operator. Right. I'm 25 years old or 24 years old at the time. Wow. Um, we are starting a concept that is a brand new category that landlords have no idea what it what it is. So we need to convince the landlord that A, I'm a good operator and our team's a good operator. And B, what we're going to do is not going to, you know, close in six months and they're going to have to release and give someone more TI. So that was the biggest kind of number one, like hurdle and challenge of like, how can we present ourselves in a professional way right. where a landlord is going to want to have us in their building? Um, because at the end of the day, people who own real estate, um, for the most part, are you know super risk averse, and so the process of retenanting and, and removing a tenant is something that no one wants to do. Right. So you know you need to convince someone that you're a great operator. So that was challenge number one, and right. you know we we again swung the bat and we missed on a few spaces, and and we got super lucky that you know we were in LOIs on a space in downtown LA. I thought it was like the greatest space ever. This is where we need to open our concept. I was completely wrong. Thank God. Um, they decided to go with another operator. They're like, Oh, um, we're going to go with a fast casual grilled cheese concept. Um, because that's what people like to eat these days. I'm like, I, you don't know what you're talking about, but okay. Um, and so, um, we, we, we missed on that space. Unfortunately, we found this, what we thought was like a C location in Santa Monica, but like from a branding and marketing standpoint, it made sense. We're like, we're, we're selling fresh fish and we're a coastal concept. Like, we, we should probably start in Santa Monica, not in the middle of the financial district of downtown. Right. So it worked out well. So that was number one. Find, finding real estate was challenging. Right. And so my, my kind of recommendation there was after a couple of no's was putting together a really clear, concise, professional looking deck that represented the partners and the concept in a way in which that, um, you know, anyone who looked at this from an ownership standpoint knew that we were serious about the concept and um, you know, we weren't just kind of like throwing this thing together and, and hoping that it worked. So that was number right. one. Then, you know, 
we got hit with the tidal wave. You know, this is obviously a good problem to have. People wanted to support us and the product was was connecting. We had a really strong product market fit. And so that in itself came with its own problems, but actually going, taking a step back, one of the reasons why we had such high demand for the product was because we sat empty for a long time and we had these beautiful vinyls outside of our windows that were showcasing what the product was going to look like. And the reason why we sat empty was because the, the health inspector and the city just kind of kept dragging us along. And, and so again, as a first time operator, um, you don't realize how quickly you can go from capitalized to undercapitalized when you're paying dead rent. And so I learned that quickly. So we had to kind of go back to our investors and, personally write some checks in order to get to the point where we were kind of on a financial um, good, you know, footprint uh, right. or good stability um, to open. But, you know, again, so like n- nugget number two is raise more money than you think you need. Think, to raise right. because, um, things are going to happen. Construction is going to be more expensive. It always is. And you could get like a nasty <laughs> inspector that, you know, drags you out, you know, three months, six months, a year, you know, hopefully not, but it happens. Right. Um, so you just need to have reserves. So then we open, um, we have a lot of demand because people are like, have been walking by this, this these vinyls for you know a year. What is this thing that's finally going to open? So we right. finally open, lines out the doors. And part of the concept, as I said, was we wanted to do homemade tarot chips. So we had homemade tarot chips. And then, you know, similar to some of like other Japanese concepts in L.A., you know, we took inspiration from like the super high end, like Nobu and Matsuhisa. And, and so like they had these dishes, like, you know, you'd get this albacore tataki that had a nice ponzu and crispy onions. So I said like, okay, we want, we need to have crispy onions on our, on our kind of poke bowls. But our whole concept was doing everything homemade and handmade, you know, in-house. So we opened a, a, a restaurant that had no hood, no idea how much our demand would be. And so with no, we had no fryer. So we literally were, had someone working 24 hours in the store, just more or less illegally, um, you know, utilizing a, a plug-in like stovetop fry, <laughs> to fry like enough the onions and taro chips to get us throughout the day. Oh my so, God. um, you know, it, it's just, I don't know if there's a lesson there other than you need to be flexible and adaptable. And then we ended up moving that production outside of the restaurant because we needed to, but um, those were kind of the three, you know, initial lessons I learned um, when we opened store number one. No, it's amazing. Definitely. Like uh, I can attest to, I mean, in the tech space, but similar, similar lesson on always raise more than you need. You know, I'll say whatever you're going to raise, just like multiply by 1.3, you know, you need a little 30% extra because things always happen and nothing goes according to plan. That's, that's some good advice. And I, I guess, you know, you, like you mentioned, you had a good problem. You're busy. Product was good. Um, when did you know it was like, obviously demands there, but when did you know it's like, okay, it's time to start location number two or three? Like how long in the journey and what kind of metrics were you looking at to be, or you and your team looking at to be like, hey, it's time. Like let's, let's open number two basically. Yeah. At the time I wasn't, you know, super sophisticated um, in understanding the business. You know, I, I learned on the, on the job and had good partner um, who, you know, taught me, but you know, what, what KPIs we should be looking at. Got it. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think we just looked at product market fit and is this something that people want to eat? 
is this a brand that people are connecting with? And the answer quickly became very clear that the answer was yes. Hmm. Um, so I think a few months, you know, I spent the first three months just, you know, at the restaurants nearly every day, all the time, meeting the neighbors, trying to understand what was working, what wasn't working, um, wearing as many hats as I could. I enjoyed it. It was, you know, like it was exhilarating. It was super exciting for me. Um, and then I think after a few months, um, you know, we were able to hire properly and take a step back and then think a little bit more big picture. And so, right. um, we went out, out and raised, um, kind of like a strategic friends and family, kind of our first seed round and, um, with the intention of opening, um, an additional four stores. And that's what we did. We started to look for leases in different spaces and um, started to grow the concept from that, from there. I love it. And out of curiosity, like at what point did you guys really realize like, okay, this is formulaic in the sense of like, you know, ROI, like X amount in, X amount out, obviously give and take, but like, was it as early as like number two, number three, or do you, do you feel like you really needed a certain scale? And once you hit 10 locations, you kind of had this methodology packed down, obviously things happen, but generally speaking, was it, when was that tipping point where you're like, okay, we got something that's super repeatable. The truth is we're still looking for that. Um, and just because we're always trying to innovate and, and get a little bit better each store and we're testing different things. And so even at 20, we're still learning. And I'd say from a design standpoint, after like number two or three, we brought our design in house. My partner, Brett handles that. And we have a very kind of, you know, pretty repeatable design aesthetic, um, that we can, that we can, um, you know, copy, but also have a little bit of uniqueness from location to location. Um, we're testing, you know, open line model. Um, we're testing locations as small as 550 square feet. Oh, wow. We're testing locations that are in um, lifestyle shopping centers, locations that are, um, you know, in more suburban areas. So we're still learning and testing. And Got it. I'd say we don't have the exact prototype for Sweetfin, which, you know, makes things interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, we understand what the business does in terms of, you know, more or less, hey, this is our average unit volume. This is, this is um, you know, the minimum amount of square foot feet, excuse me, we need to uh, reach those sales numbers. This is how we staff a location. We understand our COGS, obviously, our labor model, our labor costs. And then, um, you know, overall four wall profitability. And so, you know, when we're looking at, opening a new store is, you know, what is the sales to inv investment ratio? What is the IRR going to be on our capital that we're committing to building a new location because we are building with our own funds um, and our investor funds. Um, so, you know, we're pretty cautious about opening new locations. Love that. And, and I know one of the, the, I think slogans you guys use, and if I'm misquoting this, please correct me, but is uh, pull to bowl. So the mm -hmm. idea of just being like, you know, just that, that freshness and, uh, you know, uh, raw ingredients, health conscious, all, you know, all that good stuff. When it comes to, you know, developing the menu, considering that, you know, health conscious side, the sustainable side, how do you guys think about developing menu items while keeping true to, you know, the health conscious and the, the sustainable ethos, I guess? Yeah, it gets, it gets harder as you get bigger because you need to appeal to the masses, um, as you open more locations and, um, you know, the supply chain gets a little bit trickier as, as you 
sure. grow outside of your home market. And, and, you know, now we're at 20 stores. I think at the end of the day, we, we always have to kind of get back to our core chef driven DNA. And that's who we are. We're, we're innovative. Um, we have a culinary director that's, you know, on our team. We're always testing and tasting and learning from others, but we want to be distinct. We want to be unique. We're not copycats. Um, a lot of people copy us, which is fine. It's, it's flattering. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we want our own distinct sweet fin flavor. And we really pull from, you know, I say our, our culinary North Star is just pulling from general, like what is California and, and what is in our backyard. So we have like amazing produce. We have, you know, such a diverse city being in L.A. with some of the best food in the world from all different types of um, cultures. So, you know, we never we, we always took this idea of poke and thought like this is a, a great jumping off point, but we're not going to be traditional. We're not going to try to be traditional. In fact, we tell people we're not traditional. So what can we what can we do? Um, with this dish to make it unique and make it our own and make it truly like a melting pot of California. So we've done ceviches, we've done aguachiles, we've done, um, you know, Korean takes on poke, uh, Chinese takes on poke, obviously pull from Japanese and, and Peruvian. And so what we do, which I think is really fun, and, and this is what gets me the most excited, is we have these really unique, fun collaborations that we typically launch every quarter and we partner with a great, you know, either food content creator or a top chef, uh, people that are really uh, have their own unique culinary point of view. And we create something that's totally um, new and different and we bring it to the market. And that allows us to, you know, basically re- remain relevant, but also it allows us to uh, innovate from a culinary standpoint and stay true to our chef driven DNA. So. You know, that's how we think about innovation, um, but we're always tasting stuff and, you know, throwing ideas to our culinary director, culinary directors throwing ideas to us. And, you know, my favorite thing to do is, hey, let's meet at the restaurant, taste stuff. Let's taste, 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 taste. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to be careful, though, because you don't want the menu to get too big. So that's, <laughs> right. that's always a balance. But, yeah, just being innovative and, and thinking outside of the box. That's awesome. And it's, it sounds like, you know, a big part of what you're doing is, you know, obviously the, the, the product and staying true to, you know, your core values. It sounds like another big chunk is to your success and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, you know, having the right team in place, right? You mentioned your partner as a chef, uh, having all those right people. Any other kind, and again, I know there's probably a million and one things you did to, to get to the point where you are, but any high level strategies that you can look back and maybe share that have helped in, in the kind of growth and success you know, in, in a competitive market, right? Like, um, and I know it's sometimes it's tough to like pinpoint because I'm in the same boat when you're doing like day to day and just growing a company, you're like, there's a million things you can think of. But if you can think of like one or two uh, things you want to share just high level that have really contributed to maybe Sweetfin's growth and success, that would be awesome. I think number one is just having, you know, very strong, a very strong company mission. Um, our mission as a company is to fuel life through freshness. So everything we do is is uh, around that mission, um, bringing products to market and serving food that makes people feel good um, and is super fresh. And with through that mission, um, you know, we have our core values um, and sticking to those, you know, being very clear about them, uh, making sure it's part of your company culture and your company um, DNA 
I think being unique and standing out and taking risks and also even if you're a small company like ours, um, you know, we operate as a smart a startup, but we, you know, a lot of people feel like we're a lot bigger than we are, especially with our team, because, you know, we put a lot of care and attention and detail into the little things uh, from packaging to branding to the way things are written on our website and spending a little bit more on content than, you know, maybe a restaurant would typically. And, and just, you know, portraying ourselves as a professional team and organization and company. And so um, I think that's really important um, for a, for our segment, a growing fast, casual brand um, that may be different for a single restaurant operator. Right. But for us, you know, you need to have consistency uh, in everything that you do. Um, you need to have very strong uh, SOPs and um, standard operating procedures within the four walls of your restaurant to make sure that there's, again, consistency is key, especially when you scale. So um, I would say those are the, the main things that, that come to mind um, in terms of what I would say as yeah. a recommendation. No, I love that. And, and you know, be, being a co-founder yourself and obviously a leader, like when it comes to team, what, what qualities do you really value? Um you know, to, to kind of build that culture. I'd love to know, you know, this obviously one location is different than getting to 20. So I'd love to hear from you, like what, what kind of qualities do you look for when kind of growing uh, such a, such a large team? I look, I think I look for two things. Number one, personality. Um, you know, you could really teach most people um, the skills that they need to, to, to uh, succeed. However, you need someone with a, um, a personality that truly enjoys hospitality, has a general uh, or a genuine warmth, excitement, energy to, to what they bring on a daily basis. Um, and then obviously, you know, you want to bring someone that's, you know, intelligence, you can teach them the, the skills that they need to, to operate and someone who has, you know, high emotional, you know, EQ, intelligence, yeah. empathy, all the things that are important um, to leading our stores. And then you know, bringing in people with a, you know, hardworking uh, mentality and can-do attitude, people that are willing to, you know, roll their sleeves up, get their hands dirty and um, get in the stores and, and do anything needed um, to, to help us succeed. There's no middle management at our company. Everyone, you know, I'll jump into a store and, and uh, if I see they're backed up on dishes, I'll, I'll, I'll clean dishes or cut fish or whatever needs to be done. I think that starts from the top and then and trickles downward. Mm. We have a very flat organization, even in our stores. You know, there's not like assistant general manager, general manager, front of house, back of house, these like clear delineation of what people do and what they don't do. Everyone is expected to learn everyone's job and help out as needed. So I, I would say, you know, those, those are the two main things. Typically, you know, happy employees and the employees you mentioned that have high IQ, empathetic, you know, hardworking, et cetera, will probably lead to good customer experiences. But switching gears to the customer experience side, how do you guys incorporate customer feedback in, into your uh, into your business, right? Like, how, yeah, how do you kind of just loop that in so you guys are continually improving and kind of have that feedback loop? We are thinking about investing a little bit more into that. There's some great software you know, products out there, um, that, you know, we're talking to that can kind of bolt onto our loyalty platform, but we have, a an aggregator that, you know, aggregates all of the, the 
both positive and negative um, reviews that we're getting across a multitude of different um, you know platforms. And we look at it and you know we look. Listen, there's some people that are just miserable and you know, they're just <laughs> complaining about everything, right? Um, and so you know you gotta you gotta take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know we try to support our teams and and you know not attack them for every negative review that's left, but, you know, chalk it up to a learning experience. And, you know, if we do see a trend, um, we will bring it up to our GMs, you know, we'll go into the stores and, and, and utilize those as a coaching moment. Um, but if you come in, you know, to the restaurants and, or communicate with your GMs constantly, and it's just a negative negativity, negativity, negative negativity, then, um, you're never going to get anywhere. So I always try to lead with positivity. Hey, this is what you're doing. Great. Yeah. But here's an opportunity for us to get a little bit better. And so it, 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 it makes things a little bit easier when you're having those conversations. Makes sense. And we're, we're almost wrapping up. What I'd love to know, we've got two more for you. One is I need to know what future plans or expansions do you have in mind for, for Sweetfin? Anything you can share? Nothing I can share yet. Okay. Um, however, <laughs> we, we see a massive market opportunity our category kind of took its punches, um, but it's 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 back on its feet. It's starting to grow at a healthy clip again. There's not one strong dominant brand in this category right. uh, across the country. It's a very fragmented market. We've done a great job building a strong brand in Southern California, and we don't see why Sweetfin can uh, can't be all over the country. So that's our goal is to take the concept all over the country and um, continue to grow. That's exciting. And last but not least, Seth, I got to ask you, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? And it could be specific in the food industry, but in general, any advice you wanted to share with aspiring entrepreneurs? I think you need to rip the bandaid off. You know, there's so many reasons why there isn't a good reason to do something. And mm -hmm. so you can kind of like, I don't know what they call it, a paralysis by analysis, I think is the terminology, right? Yeah, yeah. analysis where paralysis, you, yeah. Where you can just, you know, anyone who's logical um, and yeah, anyone who, who thinks logically, there's probably not a good reason to start a business, uh, especially a food business. Um, when you look at the statistics, um, they're not in your favor. However, I think if you come into the business um, with a plan and a real business plan and understanding of the finances, uh, having a strong marketing kind of plan in terms of how you're going to launch and how you're going to sustain business and traffic and really understanding the numbers. You know, I always look at there's three numbers that are, you know, important when you're when you're opening a restaurant, your COGS. Uh, your labor and your uh, occupancy costs. If you can keep those three numbers in line, um, then you have a business that works. So just again, not just if someone has an idea and they haven't done R and D and they haven't done costing and they're just going to open a restaurant and they're just going to wing it and see how it goes. You know, that's not someone that I'm interested in, in backing financially, but if there's someone that, you know, has a thought, well thought out concept has built a business plan, has projections um, and really understands the numbers. I think, um, you know, there, there's a huge opportunity for people to succeed. Um, people are not going to stop eating. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I'll go to these restaurant conferences and you see the scale at, at which some of these operators are performing at. Um, it, it's, it's, it's inspiring. So I'm, I'm fired up about the industry. So I think you just kind of, kind of rip the bandaid off, but also at the same time, um, you know, be smart about it, be cautious, be thoughtful. 
Um, but you, you gotta, you gotta shoot your shot. Well said. So for people listening, once again, we were joined today by Seth Cohen, the president and the co-founder of Sweetfin. For people that want to check it out, it's sweetfin.com. And then Seth, I don't know if you want to plug any other uh, areas. Maybe you want to plug Instagram or any other channels. Obviously, we'll put them all in the link, but yeah. if you want to plug it's in. A, you, can, you can see us on, uh, on IG at Sweetfin, and then um, we have stores all over LA, a few down in Orange County, San Diego. Um, you can order direct from us. That's what we prefer uh, through our app or website or visit us in store. But if you must, you can also find us on Uber and DoorDash. Amazing. Well, Seth, thank you for joining us today on the Whisking It All podcast. It was a pleasure having you and thanks for sharing some, uh, some nuggets of wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Feel free to check out whisk.ai for more resources and schedule a demo with one of our product specialists to see if it's a fit for you. Oh.